watchers in the fourth dimension. We found and destroyed the enemy. RHIP, Joe. Rank has its privileges. We still have a choice. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And look, try and use your intelligence, man, even if you are a politician. It's a new season, and we're kicking it off with the first appearance of everyone's favourite evil pepper pots for the first time since 1967 in Day of the Daleks. But before we get to that, Don's going to take a look at the substantial amount of mail we've had since we last recorded. It has been a large amount of mail this time. Starting with our episode on Colony in Space, Nicholas Rutherford says, Another good episode. The Doc is definitely less of a dick in space. That sounds a lot like one of our titles, Nicholas. (laughs) Sean Collicott says, Return of the Quarry! Glad to hear someone else shares my enthusiasm. Astrozon Dagelbert Zebulon says, My least favorite Pertwee. So slow and phoned in. Sorry you felt that way. We rather enjoyed it. J.M. Casey says, I do really like this one a lot. Even if going way back to the first time I watched at age 9 or 10, the treatment of the primitives made me feel a little uncomfortable. Makes sense. I do like the moment when the Doctor and Joe step out on the planet, and I think that special moment is really there. I believe I am more of a Pertwee fan than most of the Watchers team. No idea what gave you that idea. (laughs) But I'm really enjoying the perspectives on these stories and can't really disagree with a lot of what's said. He really is a dick a lot of the time. I sense a theme. Yes. But I guess I'm a little more tolerant of the doctor being that way, especially given how unhappy he is with his circumstances. Kind of see that. Doctor Who, 60s, 70s, and 80s, also known as Paul Arthur. Like Anthony, I first watched this one on UK Gold in the 90s, and I don't think I've given it the time of day since. But in anticipation of you guys watching it, I thought I should finally give it another whirl. I like that. Thanks for watching along with us. Surprisingly, I rather enjoyed it this time around. In particular, Morris Perry as Dent is amazing. The biggest problem I had with it this viewing was Joe being completely sidelined. I think we're all just kind of getting used to that. Anyway, another excellent episode. You guys had me giggling like a schoolboy in your description of the IMC Jeeps. The titty Jeeps. (laughs) Alien Berkshop says, absolutely love this one. I don't get the hate. I want to read the novelization at some point. I think that would be really good. Moving on to the Claws of Axos, someone with a wonderful name of Glenn Chameleon Pendleberry says, The modern take would be Ego from Guardians of the Galaxy, wanting to expand itself into everything that isn't itself. Makes sense to me. Nicholas Rutherford said, Agreed that this is the best story so far of Season 8. The Master's line regarding sticky tape is one of my favorites ever, anywhere. Stephen Barrett says, Was someone on drugs when they wrote that? It was the 70s, so quite possibly. (laughs) Dave Columbus says, had a great time as usual listening to this episode. One of the best stories of the Pertwee era that never left Earth. Even though it is another invasion of Earth story, it's done in a very unique way for this era. I agree that the Master wasn't really necessary here and the story could have worked just as fine without him. It could have, but I like Delgado a lot, so it's good. Alan Seiler has a message for me saying, Don, best summary ever. Thanks, Alan. Now I'm all blushing. Just wait, Alan. Ooh, gauntlet thrown down. Alan also said, in regards to the mind of evil, I very much appreciated the gang's evaluation of this one. I've always had very mixed feelings about it. Like Riley, it simply doesn't feel like Doctor Who to me. I did recently watch the Blu-ray release and found it more enjoyable than I have in the past. Benton and Shin Lee were definitely the highlights for me, 
as was the furthering of the relationship between the Doctor and Joe. Agreed, the characters do really make it. And finally, regarding our Halloween bonus, or Hoover episode, Nicholas Rutherford says, What a treat! The Omen is one of my favorite films ever. Dave Columbus also says, I saw The Omen before I saw Patrick Troughton as the Doctor. I don't generally watch horror films, but this one was an exception for me. Now I'm going to have to dig up the house at Drip Blood because I'm curious. It's some cheesy fun. <laughs> and finally, Paul Arthur says, I really enjoyed this episode, even though I'm not a horror fan and haven't seen either film. Would you guys consider doing a Box of Delights special at Christmas? It was a brilliant 80s children's serial featuring Patrick Troughton. Definitely worth a watch. We discussed this before the show. We don't really have time on our schedule to do it this year, but something we're going to add for hopefully next Christmas. And that is the mail. Back to you, Anthony. Thank you, Don. And as a reminder to everyone listening, we really love getting your feedback, thoughts, comments, and questions. And we do try and get through as many of them as possible on the show. I know we left a couple of people out, but please do get in touch. You can contact us through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at Watches4D. And you can also email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. We will try and read out as many comments as possible. And moving on to Day of the Daleks, we will start with our usual look behind the scenes. And the origins of this serial date back to 1970. So this kicked off the 1972 season when writer Lewis Marks, who we last saw as the scribe of Planet of Giants way back in season two, was approached by the production office to write something new for the show. He devised a storyline in which guerrillas travel back in time to prevent a military dictatorship from coming to power in the future. Marx later came back with an amended version in which the Doctor also travels forward in time to the dystopian future. Once the show was formally renewed for a ninth season, Marx was officially commissioned to develop his storyline as the season opener. In parallel with this, producer Barry Letts was contacted by the BBC's managing director, Hugh Weldon, who wanted to know when the Daleks were coming back to the show. Apparently, he really loved the Daleks, probably because they were a huge money spinner for the BBC. Up to this point, Letts had generally been reluctant to reuse old monsters. However, he and script editor Terence Dix decided to meet with Terry Nation, creator of the Daleks. Nation told them that he was too busy with his work on The Persuaders to contribute a story to the show but he was open to someone else writing for the Daleks as long as he had script approval and an on-screen credit. So, for the first Dalek serial since season 4's The Evil of the Daleks, the production team turned to Robert Sloman, who was commissioned for a storyline tentatively entitled The Daleks in London, which was to be the six-part serial that would close out the show's ninth season. However, as they were kind of planning out the season, Dix and Letts soon felt that the schedule lacked a big opener to entice viewers in, in the same way that the introductions of the Third Doctor in Season 7 and the Master in Season 8 had kind of anchored those two seasons. Instead, it was decided to insert the Daleks into Marx's season opener, with Sloman pivoting to develop the Time Monster to close out the season instead. With the introduction of the Daleks, Marx's serial went through several script revisions, and with that came some name changes. First, it became Years of Doom, then The Time Warriors, then The Day of the Daleks, note the definite article at the beginning of that, then Return of the Daleks, then Ghosts, and finally Day of the Daleks, without the the at the front. In terms of plotting out the serial, Letts and Dix were generally delighted with Marx's use of time paradoxes, feeling that the show should be doing kind of more with time travel in general. 
Moffat, eat your heart out, again, and added parallel sequences in which the Doctor and Joe met themselves, one at the beginning and one at the end, showing the encounter from both perspectives. The Blinovich limitation effect was added to explain why the guerrillas couldn't repeatedly return to the same point in time to assassinate Styles. Of course, as we start out a new season, securing the show's stars was a big factor for both Let's and Dicks. They made some changes to how this was handled from the prior season, where everyone was contracted for the entire season. John Pertwee, Katie Manning, Nicholas Courtney, John Levine, Richard Franklin, and Roger Delgado. So that was a cast of six that were actually hired for all five serials. This season, just Pertwee and Manning were contracted for the entire season, with everyone else being contracted on a serial-by-serial basis. Bringing Day of the Daleks to the screen, we have Paul Bernard as the director. This is his first contribution to Doctor Who, although he'll also return to direct the season closer, The Time Monster, and also to co-direct season 10's Frontier in Space. Providing incidental music, we once again have Dudley Simpson, or as I'm going to start calling him, Dudders. <laughs> David Myerskoff-Jones returns to the show as designer for the very last time. We previously saw him with season 5's The Web of Fear and season 7's The Ambassadors of Death. Closing out our creative team, we have costumer Mary Husband making her only contribution to the show. She's also known for her work on Doomwatch, It Ain't Half Hot Mum, and Heidi High. Now, as always, a few changes to the script needed to be made during production. The guards' three-wheel motorcycles were added at the suggestion of John Pertwee, who had taken a shine to similar vehicles that he had seen at the London Motor Show. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> The Daleks foot soldiers had originally been envisioned by Marx as dog-like humanoids who spoke perfect English. It was director Paul Bernard who suggested making them slow-speaking gorillas, giving us gorillas versus gorillas, and it was during production that they became known as ogrons. Paul Bernard also removed the final scene which would have seen the Doctor and Joe visit themselves at the beginning of the serial, believing it to end the serial on an anticlimactic note, and this was something that Terence Dix was apparently very unhappy about. Paul Bernard also learned that the BBC had only retained enough Dalek parts to cobble together just three Daleks, and some of those parts originated all the way back with the first Dalek serial in 1963, so they're getting kind of old at this point. These were all refurbished for this serial. Two of the Daleks were painted in a black and grey livery, while the third was painted gold to serve as the lead Dalek. The small number of Daleks meant that Bernard had to get creative when planning his shots for the story's climax with the Daleks and Ogrons assaulting Alderley House. The finished serial was broadcast between the 1st and 22nd of January 1972. In transmission, episode 2 recorded an audience of 10.3 million viewers, which was the first time that the show's audience had exceeded 10 million viewers since the third episode of the Daleks Master Plan all the way back in 1965. So, with that nugget of information, we move into our short summary, which I believe is in the hands of Riley this time round. Over to you, Riley. At the end of the 20th century, billions of lives ended through the hundred years of war. The survivors lived only to face a new nightmare, the Daleks. The Resistance decided to send a couple of idiotic military rejects because they couldn't get the Terminator due to Schwarzenegger being unavailable. Their mission? To destroy the person responsible, John Caught, I mean Sir Reginald Stiles. The gorillas are not powerful, nor versatile, and they are very destructible. They can be reasoned with, they can be bargained with. They feel pity, they feel remorse, and lots of lots of fear. They have only one purpose, to return to the present and prevent the future. The gorillas are 
the whole reason things got screwed up in the first place, only in theaters this summer. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice one. All right, let's talk about this. Episode one. I have a question as we are getting started with this. Yes, sir. Are we talking just about the original or are we talking about the special edition or are we blending it together? Just the original, because I was told not to watch the other until after we recorded. I, I have not watched the special edition. Oh, well, I watched the special edition, which it felt like they cribbed a lot of my notes about what they were going to change. <laughs> well, if you want to talk a little bit about that, Don, you can certainly bring it into the conversation, just bearing in mind that at least myself and Julie and probably Riley have not watched it. I have not watched it. I'm wondering how that will impact your final scores. I have a question as well. My question is, when did they start letting Klingon cosplayers onto the set of Doctor Who? Well, you see, sometimes when a monkey loves a potato very much, romance happens. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to start with actually episode one, and I'm going to start with the opening scene. Thank you, everybody. I actually really like the atmosphere at the very beginning, which is the shots that they chose to do of the house and going through it. I thought that was a lot of fun. And also, one of my first things was that, hey, the music isn't as bad as I expected it to be. Wasn't it almost <laughs> so, atmospheric up until he yes. slammed on the synth after a few minutes? And the synth really wasn't as bad as it has been in other previous serials. True. It's almost like they might have had a production meeting between seasons <laughs> and sat him down and said, okay, Dudders. You're going to have to fire the symptoms. We just need you on this one. But Julie, to your point, I agree with you. I thought that the opening was wonderfully atmospheric. I took particular notes of the shots of the tapestry and the way that kind of zooms out. Oh, yeah, that was really good. And then the music ramps up that tension right until Sir Reginald opens the curtain and there's that gorilla at the window who very quickly vanishes. I thought that was so well done and sets a really great tone. I feel like that would have been more effective if they had a better uniform for the gorillas. I felt like that was out of place. I know that they want us to recognize them into the context of what a gorilla is in the 20th century, even though they are from the 22nd. And it doesn't fit into the whole ghosty kind of thing they start off with in the first episode. Maybe a futuristic outfit that could be confused to be a weird ghost, but then that would take away from the gorilla's humanity that adds in later on to the story. Well, honestly, Riley, I think if you look at kind of the context of the future history of this, after the incident, humanity descend into a hundred year war and then kind of live in holes until the Daleks invade. So honestly, having 20th century clothing somewhat makes sense. And facial hair. The facial hair, yeah. less so. Yeah, the, the look of the gorillas just don't really look like military at all. They look like backup members of the Nitty Gritty Band or Three Dog Night more than anything else. Wow, it didn't bother me. It really didn't bother me at all. Me neither, honestly. <laughs> and it was intentional. They were very much looking to kind of mirror them off of the look of Che Guevara. Which makes sense. I got kind of happy to go beyond, and I'm sure we'll talk about the gorillas more later, but we had that scene with the Doctor and Joe, and they visit themselves. Yes. It's nice to see a show that despite having time travel as one of its major components, isn't really about time travel. Having that little bit introduced, I was kind of sad that it didn't pay off anywhere, but it was still kind of fun just as a moment. 
Does it make it any better to you, Don, knowing that it was meant to and the director decided to cut it? It does. It does okay. make it a bit better. Can I talk about how much I love her outfit? Because I love her outfit. I knew we would get to the outfit conversation. I could feel it. <laughs> now, I have some things to say in episode four in regards to the outfit. But right now, I'm in love with the outfit. The plaid, is, is episode the four, overall dress. Yes. That's when we start getting a few upskirt shots. Yes. Yeah. Come on, guys. You're better than that. But no, I kind of disagree a little bit with Riley. I like the overall effect that we had. Maybe to a certain degree, the gorilla outfits were out of place, but I didn't think it was as bad as you would think. So I overall pleasantly pleased with how that all went. I want to talk about Lethbridge Stewart in this episode. For a lot of this, he's really there to be that calm face behind the desk, taking calls, coordinating stuff, and then to occasionally show up and provide exposition about peace conferences to save the world, ghostly assassins, and Doctor, we need your help. And honestly, it kind of reduces his role, but equally I think it's very effective in the context of the way this story is being told. He feels very put upon in this because there's constantly things going on. He can't even get any coffee in episode <laughs> two. But what got me is for once, we have something actually utilizing the whole point of unit. Something weird happened at this place. Let's call in unit to investigate and then kind of get drags into the peace conference. But they almost use them for what they're supposed to be there for. And this is not the first peace conference they've been involved no, in. No, no, and they, you saw what happened with that one. Why would they call them back? Unit's remit is now the weird, the unexplained, and peace conference. Yes. <laughs> it's official. Going back to what Anthony was saying about Lethbridge Stewart, it was in this serial in particular that I started to realize how much of his screen time on the show is answering phones or communicating over a CB. <laughs> That's about 80% I've, of what he does. I think I've mentioned that before. He has so many scenes where he's on the phone. The other thing about the Peace Conference, though, is that China seems to be a recurring actor, I guess we could say. I find that interesting, especially given the time period. Yeah, and what's really interesting here, if you listen carefully, when things seem to start to escalate towards the end, there's a comment about troops massing on the China-Russia border. So it seems to be that China and Russia are about to go to war, and the inference I get is it's going to kind of cause a World War One style of various alliances dragging the entire world into conflict, mm -hmm. which is definitely an interesting take. Not really yeah. what one thinks of when thinking about the Cold War. That's true. All right, Sir Reginald. Oh my God, what an oh. asshole. <laughs> I was kind of surprised because I expected him because he saw the thing and it was concerning enough that they called in unit and then he does everything he can to poo-poo the idea. Yeah, he's very prickly. He's very cantankerous. It's like they've taken all of the negative traits that we saw in The Doctor in Season 8 and given them to Sir Reginald. And Pertwee's actually quite yes. cool, this story. Yeah, comparatively. Yeah. Again, I had a, another pleasantly surprised. So while we had less synth, we also had less dick of a doctor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Though it was this episode where with the third Doctor, I finally was able to narrow down what it is about the third Doctor that makes him who he is. And I was thinking about the scene where after they are settled in, staking out the house as they're waiting for these ghosts to arrive, and he's sitting back eating some cheese, gorgonzola, of course, and some wonderful wine. Joe's a little freaked out. 
gorillas come and then he does his karate chops and stuff like that. But notice that he karate chops, followed it up by finishing his drink and then karate chops again. <laughs> and then I realize what it is. He's playing the doctor as some sort of badass macho guy from like a men's life magazine or something. <laughs> that's what he's doing. And I was like, that's it. And when you think about so many things, like you mentioned about the three wheeler, I was like, he's trying to take the doctor and make him almost like a James Bond like character. Oh, yeah, very which much so. is oh. a huge leap from where we've been. It's a completely different direction. So this is why all the fanboys like the third doctor. <laughs> yes, maybe they just like frilly shirts. I don't know. <laughs> Speaking of frilly shirts, there's that scene towards the end of the episode where two unit soldiers meet their death by disintegration. And I really wish we'd had an Austin Powers style cut to their families. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Which is a funny reference because back in the controller's lair, he seems to have fembots working for him. He does. Yes. Yes. I wanted some sort of backstory, an explanation. I was just curious. The ones that were playing the non-musical theremins? Yes. Yes. <laughs> the ones that were just so over it that sound like I do on a Friday afternoon. Wouldn't even look <laughs> him in the eye when he was talking to blah, blah, blah. They were so done. I was wondering whether they were just done or whether they were under some kind of mind control, conditioning, something like that. I'm going with my headcanon of they're just over it. Let's talk about this whole group, because what in the world is wrong with their skin? It's got the sheen to it, yeah, doesn't it? They also have silver yes. nail polish. Yes. And it made me feel really awkward because I'm sitting there, I'm like, are they supposed to be gold or is it just a shine to it? I don't really know. And it kind of weirded me out the entire time. I think it's kind of meant to suggest kind of the beautiful elite versus everyone else who's working in fundamentally slave factories and mines. So the 1% are like glammed up and shiny and very polished and everyone else is dirty and nasty. They should have gone full Hunger Games. Yes. <laughs> because it was not that clear to me that that's what they were going for because it just looked like really bad face paint. I mostly ignored it, mainly because I couldn't quite process what was supposed to be. So I'm like, all right, let's just, I guess, shiny is really in, in the dark dystopian future. Something I didn't ignore was how much of an ass Yates was in this episode. Oh my goodness. Ugh. Rank has its privileges, oh. right? Uh, mm. Again, reasons why Benton is superior to Yates, right here. Joe was so oh. nice to Benton, and just as he's about to take a bite of the cheese, Yates shows up and sends Benton off and just takes it for himself. Again, the Doctor's dickery has been transferred elsewhere, and Yates is one of those people. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> dickery cannot be created or destroyed, it can only be transferred. Mm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One thing I really want to touch on here is as we move towards the cliffhanger, I feel like previous Dalek stories, even though they've had Daleks in their title, have saved the reveal of the Daleks for the cliffhanger of the first episode and kind of leave everyone waiting and wanting. And here, probably about 10 minutes before the end, we get a random Dalek yelling, report at the controller. And that just deprives us of that standard cliffhanger reveal. And I just find that really disappointing because it was unnecessary. That's because they didn't care. They just wanted that sweet, sweet Dalek money. 
Yeah. First of all, I can't believe you just let Riley's law of conservation of dickery fly right by like that. That's very bothersome. <laughs> Second of all, Riley's right. This is not a Dalek story. It yeah. happens Mm-mm. to have Daleks in it, and it does not deserve the title of Day of the Daleks or Afternoon of the Daleks or <laughs> Slight nope. Moment of the Daleks. And yeah, the reveal is completely bungled. Yeah, and honestly, I'm sure we'll touch on it, but I think it didn't have to be the Daleks. It could really have been any aliens pulling the strings of the controller. There didn't even need to be, honestly, any aliens. No. Yeah. It could have been a completely human story. We end the episode with the Daleks yelling, all enemies of the Daleks must be destroyed, exterminate them, exterminate them. And that leads us into a cliffhanger. But before we talk about episode two, let's talk about the voices of the Daleks. Yeah, I'm glad you brought oh. that up. What the hell happened? There was like one or two of them that sounded fine. It was like, okay, it's that not quite high pitch, but almost high pitch. And then there was just that one Dalek that was just like, exterminate. And was like, that's not, that's not right. They spoke slower than normal. That too. And overall, they didn't work. Now, apparently I'm the only one that watched the special edition as well, because I thought that's what we were doing as a comparison. They got Nicholas Briggs to re-record this in addition to some other things that were tweaked. That one made a big difference for me because they just didn't sound like Daleks. They sounded like bad impressions of Daleks to me in this. Mm. I'm with you on that, Don. I didn't rewatch the special edition in prep for this, but I have seen it before and it does make a difference for sure. Yes. I believe it. I think what happened here is it's been five years since they last used the Daleks and they've kind of forgotten how to do them properly. Yes. All right. Episode two. Episode two. That was like, what, an almost minute long recap? Yeah. And then what was really interesting was we get the sting at the end of the recap. We do. Which we haven't had before. And I don't think we ever get it again. No, we did not. And I found that really weird. But we then go into um, the doctor interacting with the gorillas and all of that. And I really like the doctor in this scene. When he's proving that he's not so Reginald? Yes, I actually liked it. He does have some moments in this serial. No doubt about it. Can we also talk about Anat? Oh, we have a strong female character again? Yeah. What a woman. Oh. <laughs> I love her. She is great. So I like that whole interaction, but then Joe gets manhandled because that's just what has to happen. And the treatment of Joe still isn't quite where I want it to be. I didn't like the way the doctor treated Joe when they were tied up. Yeah. And I was liking the doctor. I think just before it happened, I had written, I'm really liking the way the doctor is acting in the serial. And then he's saying, oh, at least I've got some quiet and blah, 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 and some other shit. I'm like, God damn it. Why are you doing this? But to be fair, it's a much better dynamic than when we last saw them in The Demons. Yes. Even if it's not ideal, it's progress. It seems, I don't want to say it's quite jokingly, but it feels like he means it less in this one than he did in, in other ones. It somehow comes across as a little bit less mean. He's still kind of a dick about it, but it's not as much of one. Fair enough. I mean, aside from that one scene, which didn't go down well with me, he is much less of a dick through the serial. And when he is, it tends to be toward characters that need it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, he is. 
I did find their interaction talking about the gorillas to be interesting because Joe is very adamant. She calls them thugs and the doctor corrects her and says, well, actually, they're really just fanatics. I think that's very interesting because as we go through the story, we see that they're not necessarily wrong. And you think about the imagery that they're playing on with Che Guevara, with the Palestine liberation groups. It puts that kind of political perspective on them that not everything is black and white in these situations. I kind of like. That's true. There's a lot of depth to this. There's no depth to what I'm about to say next, but can we talk about the Ogrons for a minute? <laughs> yes. I love the scene where they're reporting to the controller. We found and destroyed the enemy. Yes. They talk like Gumbies from Monty Python, and it... <laughs> Oh, it, it made me bizarrely happy. I actually really like them. They're big, they're lumbering, but there's something kind of fun about them. Yeah, yeah. I think they pair really well visually next to the Daleks. It's so clashing and unusual and surreal looking, especially in our final battle scene, their siege of the house. Like I said, I found the imagery striking. They complement each other. And I know it's from a different episode, but I really loved the statement that it's like the Ogrons, like they will listen to whatever the Daleks say. And the comment was, well, it's because people won't listen to them. And I was like, that is so telling. Mm hmm. Yeah. I really liked how that was put. We get a lot of fluff here with the gorillas taking the Doctor and Joe back and forth to the basement. But one part I really love is when the Doctor gets brought back upstairs to talk to the Brigadier on the phone. And he basically says, yes, yes, everything's fine. Tell whomever. And he goes, oh, and don't forget to tell the Marines, which is clearly Lethbridge Stewart's cue that something's mm -hmm. kind of wrong here. And the look on his face is just priceless. He looks so put out. <laughs> the Brig tends to look put out a lot in this serial. But I love that they have a code, so to speak, of how can you fit this in to a conversation to make me think, oh, something's not right. Yeah, exactly. That's how you do it, is you come up with something ahead of time where you can have like those things. And I enjoyed that. Another item is how Joe manages to get herself sent to the future. I mean, it's typical Joe. Yeah. She's taking actions into her own hands, which she does tend to do for better or for worse. It's always for worse, actually. <laughs> and she gets sent to the future. Now, the biggest issue that I had is that of how trusting she was of the controller. Yeah, she is so easily manipulated. I think it's because she really didn't like the gorillas. And so just having someone go, oh, yeah, they're terrible. It was easier for her. Yeah. Yeah, she's had a bad experience. She's already a little prejudiced going into that. Yeah. And frankly, the controller, also known as the Candyman from Willy Wonka. Mm -hmm. Come on. Yep. Oh, is, is He's very suave. And I yeah, really, I really charming. loved the guys acting throughout this entire serial. Oh, he so was good. probably the best. He was really good. Also, he kind of reminds me of Data from Star Trek The Next Generation in his like sheen and the way his hair yeah. is styled. <laughs> yes. And I love his Nehru jacket too. <laughs> you gotta have a Nehru jacket. <laughs> it's the 70s, man. This just popped into my brain, but I don't want to forget it because I loved it. When I think it was the dead gorilla that they found when he was in the back of the ambulance with Benton and they triggered the time machine and he disappeared, there's this wonderful, oh shit, I'm in so much trouble look on Benton's face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like they just asked me to guard this corpse and now it's gone. And how am I going to explain it? 
I feel like John Levine and Richard Franklin as Yates are pretty sidelined during this, at least in comparison to what we saw of them in The Demons. Mm -hmm. But when we do see them, even if Yates is being a dick, John Levine They're and Richard wonderful. Franklin play it so well. Yes, they make the most of the small scenes that they have. They don't phone it in. They are fully committed. And I love it. Okay, let's talk about the elephant in the room. We have Ogrons converging on the house, and the Doctor kind of blunders in as the gorillas are looking to protect it. He uses his Venusian Aikido on both the gorillas and the Ogrons, and then just casually guns down a couple of Ogrons. Yeah, he has no issue popping a cap and some ogre ass on that one. Yeah, that doesn't quite sit right with me, just with the general character of the Doctor. You can kind of see... Yeah, <laughs> yeah... It kind of goes back to what I was saying before. He is portraying the Doctor as James Bond. Mm -hmm. Very much so. There you go. I mean, James Bond has no qualms about shooting somebody. Yep. And again, that's why I think a lot of fanboys love him. Fanboys love James Bond. One element I do love here is when he steals Lethbridge Stewart's Jeep. And we get kind of what I wish became more of a regular catchphrase, where Lethbridge Stewart yells at him once again, having done so in Colony in Space, Doctor, come back at once. Knowing full well the Doctor can't hear him, and he even has this just resigned look on his face. <laughs> has zero interest in coming back either way. And then we get our cliffhanger with, with, the, with the Dalek <laughs> that's in the tunnel, which I don't honestly think it had anything to do with the plot. I think that Dalek had been living there for five years since Evil of the Daleks. <laughs> you know, it was promised its own Hollywood show. It got nothing. It wound up just homeless in this tunnel. Terry Nation took it to the US with him and then just abandoned it, kicked it to the curb. All right, episode three, where the cliffhanger is resolved with the Doctor just running away from the Dalek. And we have that recap again where the, like you said, theme bleeds over. <laughs> it's, yep. It doesn't work. It seems so sloppy editing-wise. Yeah, but at least it's a very short recap instead of a minute-long recap. Made up for the absurdly long recap in the prior episode, yeah. Okay, I realize I'm not normally the one to comment on the soundscape, but did anyone else notice that in the tunnels, they reused the Scaro City soundscape from the very first Dalek serial. No, I did not. I thought that was a wonderful touch, but apparently I was the only one who noticed it because I'm a big nerd. <laughs> well, you've seen these things multiple times. Yeah. I saw the Daleks episode once, and I've seen this episode once. Fair. I think it all stems from the fact that over in the last few seasons, my brain has been able to shut out Dudley Simpson music, so I just don't even hear anything. It's just like a, It's just white noise. <laughs> for me, so I don't hear anything. Nice. Okay, so the Doctor and Co. all end up in the 22nd century after we get kind of another floating through time effect, which, let's be honest, was not great, but equally don't know why I expected more, because it's 1972. It's better done, obviously, in the special edition. I think the only effects in the original that bothered me and this is so stupid. There's a scene where the controller is reporting to the Daleks and he's on a view screen, yeah. said in quotes, and it's just wobbly CSO all over the place. That drove me insane. It was the thought, like, what is going on? Why is it moving? This isn't hard, even in 1972. But you'll be happy to know they fixed that in the special edition. So it's OK. It's OK now. Thanks, Don. 
Sorry, you're welcome. Can we talk about 22nd century architecture? It looks a lot like 20th century brutalism. A lot like it. Mm -hmm. We'll see that again later in the Pertwee era. So the thought process would be is that they break out into war immediately in the 70s and then do that for 100 years. And then they're taken over by the Daleks after living in holes in the ground. So some of that architecture might have just still been there. Yeah, fair. All right, the Daleks and the controller, is it me or do they have a lot more patience with him than you would expect them to? That. I didn't quite understand it. He was like, hey, I need to be able to talk to these people. I'm able to get into their heads because I'm human and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, okay, what? It's almost like they had no business being in this serial at all, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and they push extra production targets on the controller and he pushes back against them and they're basically like tough shit. Yeah, they're middle management. Gotta do it. But then the controller has to go to the factory leader later, who we know is a secret gorilla, and send the message downstream. And we know the controller's tried to argue against it, but the factory leader doesn't. And the controller kind of has to threaten him and say, you know, if you fail to do this, you know what this will mean for you and your family. But he's just the messenger. Like, we've seen how this kind of chain works. It's interesting. And he also did his research to figure out that that guy was intentionally sabotaging production. So he knew what he was up to, but he still didn't go, aha, you're a spy. I'll have you killed. He was like, you know, you're going to have to bring this up. You're making it obvious on yourself. Yeah, I think the controller is just such an interesting and complex character. And what really strikes me about this story is how both he and the gorillas are trying to make life better for everyone on Earth, just in very, very different ways. The controller is trying to ease kind of the wrath of the Daleks, while the gorillas are trying to literally change history. Yeah, it's very nice to have those contrasting and yet sort of working towards the same thing. He's trying, but he's essentially given up hope. He's like, there's no way we'll ever be able to overthrow them. I have to make things as easy as I can on people. Yeah, it's very nuanced. Well, it's interesting because then it doesn't really make him a villain. So there's really not really a villain because of how little the Daleks really matter in this story that it's very odd that there's not really a I mean they threw in the Daleks to make us feel that way but really if you think about it they're inconsequential and I realize we'll get to it in episode four but I almost feel like the gorillas themselves are kind of the villains even though we know they're trying to stop what happens we find out that they are the cause of what happens and they just don't know it so they're not like outright moustache twirling villains villains, but they are still responsible for the future that we see they're the antagonists well no they're not they're not even that it's complex and it's new the catalyst i think is what you're trying to say they're the catalyst but they all have the best intentions but it doesn't always work out like they would want one scene i loved here is you get the controller talking to Joe. He's very nice. He's very charming. Joe looks very, very pretty. And she kind of gets a little suspicious with the guard who basically refers to the doctor. Don't worry, he's alive and well. And we cut to the doctor being literally dragged into interrogation. And that guard turns out to be an absolute fucking sadist. (laughs) I mean, if you'd spent five minutes in a room with that complete pretentious twat of a doctor, you'd probably want to beat the shit out of him too. I'm just saying. (laughs) I think we should discuss, this is episode three, the best scene in the entire serial. And that is the Doctor and Joe on a three-wheeler. 
Driving around some Ogrons. <laughs> oh, oh my god. Jesus it's Christ. It's very silly. Did anyone else notice that the wheel seems severely underinflated on that thing? I noticed that. That seemed really unsafe. Also, I know. What a pointless chase sequence. And it's the 22nd century, and they didn't even bother to try to make the three wheeler look slightly futuristic oh, no. at all. It's just. It- was so very small. The wheels were awful. It was never going to outrun anybody, which is like, well, what's the point of this thing? And it was very poorly choreographed. There just really wasn't anything good about it. Mercifully, and like I said, they seem to be following my notes in the special edition. They cut that down severely. So it almost makes sense. And it's certainly not going, oh, this is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> That scene, a friend of mine who does a series of videos called Doctor Who in 10 Seconds, which was one of the inspirations behind our short summaries, he parodied that in his season nine video. So I'll put the link in the episode blurb. Go and check it out because it's really, really funny. He's literally pedaling along on like a kid's tricycle as members of his (laughs) wrestling club with paper ogron masks on chase him around a gym. It's so funny. (sighs) Wonderful. That kind of leads us into the Doctor being exposed to the mind probe, which kind of leads us into our cliffhanger. And we see pictures of Hartnell and Trout in a game for the first time in forever. And because Pertwee is so different, the Daleks have to identify him by looking at the closing credits. Yes. (laughs) That was uh, questionable. It's so nice to see the older Doctors again, even just for a moment. What was really interesting about that was in The Power of the Daleks, the Doctor had literally just regenerated and they recognized him immediately. Here we have a new Doctor who they don't recognize because, and I forget who it was, it was probably Sandifer, but one of the critics talks about how much the show has changed to the point where the Daleks almost don't recognize the protagonist anymore, which is very meta. They're not alone. (laughs) The Daleks don't even know what TV show they're on anymore. What show is this? Is this the A-team? Where the hell am I? How are we meant to act? I I think they identified the doctor by his pants. Yeah. And his outfit is so different now. Don, you mentioned the closing sequence being used for the brain pattern. What I found interesting, as we cut to the closing credits, before it goes full screen, we see the Dr. John Pertwee overlaid on actual live action, which was such a weird creative choice for me. It's odd. It made me laugh. And I can kind of respect it. They did change that in the special edition. I can kind of see why, because it's kind of cheesy, but it's also pretty funny. I like the interpretation that the Daleks figured out from looking at the closing credits of the show. Like, oh, I guess he is the Doctor. (laughs) All right. Episode four. I would like to ask everyone about their opinion on the controller and his excuse about caving into the Daleks and not joining the Resistance Do you think his excuse holds up or not? When you say that, you're talking about when he's like, show mercy, show that our way is the right way. Well, I think he was just explaining himself to the doctor. The doctor was criticizing him. When the doctor calls him out on being a collaborator? Yes, yes, yes. I think it does. I mean, if nothing else, he believes it. Yeah. It's when you grow up in that world, because what he was third generation of a family working with the Daleks... It makes sense. They're trying to rebuild a population and keep the population surviving, even though the Daleks are using them for materials and making the best of a bad situation. I don't exactly blame him because he knows nothing else. 
And he's seen the guerrillas try and fail time and time again. And he's basically left with two options. He can oppose from the outside and almost certainly die. Or he can try and make things a little better for humanity from the inside. And he's clearly chosen the latter. And as has already been said, he truly believes it. And he's even like the guy that was in charge of that one factory. He totally could have had him hauled away knowing full well he was a traitor. But he didn't. He knew what the guy was up to and kept him there, but basically just said, look, you've got to bring those up. They're basically on to you. I agree. I mean, if seven eighths of the world population was gone, the Daleks show up with some Lord of the Rings <laughs> ogres. Well, let me tell you, I, for one, welcome our new pepper pot overlords in that situation. <laughs> Yeah, what I like is when we get further into the episode is when he actually sees a true shot of being able to do better, he's like, okay, I will take that stance because it's not just the gorillas time and time again. It's someone else has come in, he sees what's actually wrong, and I'm going to trust him to make that different. And his final words are so good. It's so defiant. Who knows? I may have helped to exterminate you. Mm. Yeah. That was a punch your fist in the air moment because, wow, he came good. Absolutely. Oh, but before we get through all of that, we can talk about what happens to Joe and her outfit. Go on, Julie. <laughs> I'm very upset by the editing team and the director for not saying, hey, you know what? Maybe we should reshoot this because we really didn't need to see her panties. Didn't need to happen. I'm sorry. Because it happened multiple times. I'm with you on that. It's gratuitous, candidly. And much as I find Joe actually attractive for the first time in this series, in this episode, I think it was kind of inappropriate and unnecessary. You just needed it once to show that it matched your scarf. You didn't need to go multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> My God. See, that's the funny thing. I can only remember one time where I was like, okay, why are they sitting on the floor? eating like i know this is supposed to be the future so we're gonna to try to do something different here and then she moves and oh that's why we're sitting on the floor but that's the only time i remember it they could have shot it differently to avoid the upskirt oh, yeah. i mean even with them sitting on the floor oh exactly as much as yeah. i joked about the whole jamie kilt thing they never actually <laughs> showed anything they always had like the shadow the right way and they always were able to do it at such an angle that you really couldn't see up it. And then this time they're just like, no, nope, we're going to go full in. I'm like, guys. Don, does that change with the special edition? There was, if I'm thinking correctly, there's the one where they're going back down into the tunnel. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah, that's cut. Okay. So I think they may have done oh, it in, okay. in several. They made a lot of changes, like small changes, but I think it really works in terms of tightening up the serial quite a bit. I think the Joe upskirt shots are kind of the most egregious objectification of a companion until the 1980s, and we get John Nathan Turner and his idea of one for the dads. But we'll get to him later. Yeah, we oh, will no. get to that later. Okay, where do we go from there? Let's talk about the gorillas, the resolution here. Do we want to talk about that? Yeah, so I love how this is framed. They want the Doctor to go back and assassinate Styles, and that leads us into a, a really interesting ethical debate. Should we kill one man in order to save the future? It's kind of the same thing as if you could go back in time and kill Hitler as a baby, would you do it? Yes. It's still murder, fundamentally, and in this case it wouldn't have worked because killing Styles is what triggers the future, but I still think it's an interesting ethical debate. I was less taken in by the ethical debate and more completely confused by, I believe, wouldn't that be the bootstrap paradox that they're dealing with? Yeah. It is a bootstrap paradox, yeah. 
so I couldn't deal with that because they never touched on that issue. They just let it yeah. go, which then set me off to a, okay, so I'm just not going to bother with this. I'm just going to sit back and watch the Ogrons and the Daleks attack and just be happy with that and not think about it anymore. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of bootstrap paradoxes in writing, but yeah, I just kind of ignored it. Okay, that's what they went with. At least they're finally approaching something about time travel in this serial and just kind of went on. We get a much better explanation and resolution of a bootstrap paradox in the Capaldi era. Oh yes, that's an excellent episode. When it comes to time travel and stories, I usually just let it wash right over me and don't pay attention, especially in Doctor Who because it changes all the time. I would like it to be consistent within the world, but Doctor Who is definitely not that. (laughs) Let's talk about the climax here. The controller helps the Doctor and Joe escape and get back to the past or to, I guess, the present to try and save the future. And the Daleks decide to go back to stop the peace conference and kill Styles themselves. And it leads to the action finale that they've had to kind of creatively direct to make it look like there are more than three Daleks. But there are several elements through it I really love. One is the use of a news broadcast, which I think we've all talked about being one of our favorite narrative devices of this era. And that guy was an actual real-life news broadcaster that they used. Playing a real-life news broadcaster. Yeah, he was playing himself. He was actually between jobs at the time, so he had wrapped (laughs) up one contract, hadn't moved on to the next one, and this was a little bit of a payday for him, which I love. So the Daleks and the Ogrons are about to make their push onto the house. The Doctor and Joe have gotten back. The Brigadier shows up at the house. At this point, I had completely forgot he was in this serial. I was like, oh, there he is. He shows up. They clear out the house of the delegates, who for some reason don't seem to be bothered by hearing the gunfire going on behind the house. Gunfire and explosions. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they seem totally fine with that. And of course, we have the most important thing. David Crosby of the gorillas is downstairs with a wounded arm (laughs) and has the Daleganium bomb underneath that's going to set everything off. And we unfortunately do not get Benton with a bazooka because they didn't want to do that to <laughs> serials in a row. I do love Shura's last words where he says, this time it's going to be different. That was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And it is. Speaking of the delegates and styles, two elements. Firstly, I love the clash between the Doctor and Styles and how the Brigadier takes charge and orders Sir Reginald out. And tells him to (laughs) shut up. Yeah. The other thing I loved earlier in the episode is where the Doctor describes Sir Reginald as vain to the point of arrogance, a trifle obstinate perhaps, but still basically a good man. (laughs) Are we sure he was talking about Sir Reginald? I was going to say, describing yourself, Doctor, maybe? Yeah, I didn't really quite understand that description of Styles, but all right, we'll just let it happen. Uh, Maybe Styles was just angry that day. I don't know. The dude was basically responsible for world peace. I mean, I would probably be a bit cranky and stressed out with that. But I think the best part is at the end when the doctor talking with Sir Reginald and he's like saying that, you know, we need to make sure the peace conference is successful. He wasn't a huge dick about it. He was just like, hey, just make sure that you do this right. Yeah. And he left it at that. And that brings us to the end of the story. I think this was an interesting story, and I'm very excited to hear how everyone rates it. So let's move on to that. Don, you get to go first this time. Oh, I did not want to go first, (laughs) but I will. I really, really liked this serial. I liked the fact that there was some depth 
to our characters, especially in the controller. I like the fact that we had a strong female character. I really enjoyed that time travel actually played a part in a plot in Doctor Who. That's almost unheard of. Some of the issues I had with it as far as how it was realized, such as the Dalek voices, some of the CSO effects. Oddly enough, not the final battle. I'm used to them trying to do things with fewer Daleks than they actually have. Were reconciled in the special edition. I really enjoyed this serial in a way I haven't in a long time. I like the fact that aside from a few points in time, the Doctor wasn't too much of a dick. I'm going to give it 8.5 monkeys loving potatoes out of 10. (laughs) Okay, Julie, you're up next. There were a lot of things that I liked about the serial. We've talked about it in quite a few details. Dudley Simpson didn't go overboard with synth. We have complex characters. I'm not even going to say villains because... We all know we had that discussion earlier and things of that nature. Now, for some reason, as sometimes Don would go about this, I didn't get super excited with this serial. So I didn't have a lot against it, but for some reason, I just didn't enjoy it as much as I've enjoyed some others. But again, it was actually very well done. So I will probably give it eight non-musical theremins out of ten. Okay, Riley. Wow, okay. This is awkward. I think this serial <laughs> feels rushed and not filled out. The production history is a good explanation as to why that is the case. Neither of you mentioned this in your rating, your final review. The Daleks, it was a viewer grab. I don't like that at all. It's very cheap for them to do that for a story to add them when they're completely unnecessary. They could have created any other sort of antagonist for the story and would have made no difference. In fact, maybe it could have made the story more interesting if it was someone other than the Daleks. The premise for 1971 is very decent, but I don't think there's enough depth. I do like the controller. I wish we had more time to get to know maybe the gorillas a little bit more personally. Maybe get to know people from the future, characters that are suffering under the Daleks, get to know them more personally the positives were the set design. I enjoyed how the serial starts. It's very intriguing. And the pace is very good. But I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to give it six delicious gorgonzolas out of ten. I'm going to join Don and Julie on this and actually hype this one up. I really enjoyed this. I think, yes, the Daleks are an unnecessary addition, but you take them out and maybe you elevate an upper class of the Ogrons and do a Planet of the Apes style thing with it, and and it would work just as well. I think the story itself is fully developed. It's just they've shoehorned the Daleks in where it should have been literally anyone else pulling the strings. That said, I agree with a lot of what Don and Julie were saying. I think this is very well fleshed out. It's very nuanced. It's very layered. No one is entirely in the wrong with the exception of the Daleks who are just out to conquer Earth and then strip it for its raw materials to fuel the rest of their conquests. So for me, I just can't help but enjoy it. I think the gorillas are great. I think the Ogrons are a good concept. I think Pertwee is the most bearable he's been in quite a while, probably since The Mind of Evil. Joe has a little bit more to do than she has in previous stories. The upskirt shots are gratuitous and unnecessary, but they're pretty much blink and you miss them. It's only if you're trying to dissect it to the level that we are that you really notice them. And you've got the brigadier being the brigadier and coordinating everything. You've got Yates being a dick and Benton being wonderful. I just can't help but enjoy this. So I think I'm with Don and I'm going to give this eight and a half 
Dalekanium explosives out of 10, which gives us a story average of 7.75, which ties it for a season opener with Spearhead from Space. So this one's done pretty well with us. So with that, we're basically out of time. We will be back next episode when we will be going off-world again in The Curse of Peladon. But until then, as always, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Slight Moment of the Daleks, was recorded on Wednesday the 10th of November 2021. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. We can also now be found on YouTube, and the link to that is in the description for this episode. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, time paradoxes are a goddamn headache.